everybody. Welcome back to Big Nerdy Questions. This is Josh once again from the future. Uh, you are now about to listen to part two of our discussion with Rick, Admiral Marius from Starbase 66 and the 7th Chevron podcast talking about Star Trek The Next Generation and its two-part episodes. Uh, as a reminder, uh, our panel this week is myself, Josh, as well as JP, uh, Josh P., from previous episodes. Last week, we talked about the episodes Encounter at Firepoint, The Best of Both Worlds, Redemption, and Unification. This week, we'll be starting off with Time Zero and going through the rest of the two-part episodes. Thanks again for listening to B&Q. I hope you enjoy. As you all know who listen to the show, I am a historian, well, an archivist, but I have a history background. <laughs> So naturally, this is going to maybe appeal to me, maybe not. Uh, the next episode is the end of Season 5 into Season 6, Time Zero, also known as Data Has a Really Freaking Old Head Now. <laughs> yeah. We have a, a, it's a time travel episode, as the title would suggest. The crew of the Enterprise end up in late 19th century San Francisco. They encounter Jack London and Mark Twain. Data is there for a while by himself and becomes a poker savant, of course. Absolutely. And, and an inventor in the in the vein of Nikola Tesla is what I kind of felt like they were going for. Uh, and the crew blends in. How Jordy got away with wearing his visor in the middle of ni- 19th century San Francisco, I will never understand. Of course, it shows you Star Trek's continued fascination with San Francisco, as in the voyage home, where go back again another century. The plot line is essentially that there's an alien race in the time of the Enterprise D going back in time and stealing the life force, energy, something like that, from these people in the past using their snake canes. If you don't know what a snake cane is, watch the episode and it'll make some sense. By the end of the episode, everything is resolved. Everyone's back where they ought to be. Picard has saved the day uh, with the help of Guinan, who's in this episode probably more than any other episode in the entire series run. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg actually... Uh, waived her one-day-only shooting rule for this episode because she liked the script. So she, you can tell she's in it quite a bit more than it, and it sets up her relationship with Picard and why it runs so deep. There are certainly things in Time Zero that I find enjoyable. I do like some of the set pieces. In Part 2, some of the buildings have in-jokes. Like, I think there's one at, like, Okuda's Bank, and Okuda is the set designer. Oh, really? <laughs> I never noticed that. <laughs> so there's, there's some nice... In jokes in Time Zero, I like the preposterousness, the the, uh, the insanity of giving Data a 500-year-old head and just saying, oh, it works the same because the positronic net doesn't degrade over time. You know, bit rot isn't a thing apparently in Doctor Soong's world. <laughs> but you, there, it's entertaining to see some of the characters in the past. I, I do like some of Data's activity in the past, and I certainly think that uh, Mark. Uh, I'm blanking on his name, but the man who portrayed Mark Twain did a good job portraying the, the classic author. That said, I feel like there's this episode isn't perfect. Uh, time travel is tough to pull off in any situation, and it gets rather convoluted rather quickly, And but it also gets resolved rather simply for as convoluted as it got. Josh, what are your thoughts on Time Zero? There are too many ways to describe this. I'm going to say that this episode was fun. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and and it was. It, it's a honestly, it was a a great vacation from the normal stress levels of Star Trek. If if you guys know what I'm where I'm coming from on that, mm-hmm. absolutely. 
Yeah, but I, I and you already pointed out the one thing that I, I think I appreciate most about it is that they really let you get to know and experience just how great of a character Guinan was on the series. Yeah, this is this is her best episode. Yes, uh, by far. She is easily one of the most underrated characters. In, 20, in 24th century terms, she has always been the woman behind the man of Captain Picard, and you really get to learn how that comes to be in this episode. And so that's that's one reason why I salute it. Now, is this one of my favorite episodes of all time? No, I, I really enjoyed <laughs> I really enjoyed the preposterousness. Uh, uh, being a Futurama fan myself, I, I enjoy anything preposterous. But uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed just how like just how they swung for the fences <laughs> on absurdity by by having Mark Twain travel with them. Yes. So <laughs> yeah. So I'm putting it down as not not a great episode, but it was fun. It's a fun romp, almost like a TOS kind of romp with uh, Return to Tomorrow. <laughs> it kind of, mm-hmm. it feels like that. Rick, do you do you think it's as a fun episode? Yeah, it's it's fun. It's silly. It yeah. ultimately has no repercussions whatsoever. I I love how, and and this has been a Star Trek thing, and it's it's kind of a science fiction thing too. Of androids are immortal. Anytime, you know, it's always, how yes. long will you live? Well, I, I'll live forever. I'm an android. And it's like, you know what? My car is is six years old, and it's falling apart. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but, you know, given that conceit, uh, it, you know, it's fun. It's silly. You get some wonderful moments with, with uh, you know, Picard and, and the landlady. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yes. Oh, yeah. They're very own Mrs. Hudson. <laughs> The guy that that was playing Twain, little too much prosthetics. You know, I personally know a guy in South Florida who does Mark Twain with just a little bit of makeup. He doesn't need all the prosthetics. So I'm sure they could have found someone in Hollywood that didn't need that much makeup to play Twain. But that being said, it was still fun. I, I loved his portrayal. I don't really have a bad thing to say about this episode. I don't know that it needed to be a two-parter. No, it certainly didn't need to be a season cliffhanger. No, no. No. Not when you have, I think we can move on, not when the next two-parter is Chain of Command. Mm. The kick the kick in the Grundies. <laughs> that seems more like a season cliffhanger, even though it wasn't. Uh, Chain of Command, first half of, there are two two-parters in the middle of season six. Chain of Command is in the first half. Chain of Command, uh, if you don't know this episode by title, you'll know it by the quote. There are four lights! You know what? Before you go any further with the synopsis, I just want to say I wanted to rewatch them. I couldn't make myself watch this one again. <laughs> this one's not because rough. it's bad. <laughs> it's rough. It's like one of the, yeah. it's like Train Spotting or Requiem for a Dream. Great films, but you don't want to watch them twice. Right. And I, I, and it shows. So Chain of Command for uh, is an episode where there's information that the Cardassians are going to mount an ambush attack on a Federation colony. And Picard is relieved of duty on the Enterprise because of his knowledge of the Cardassians and takes Worf and Dr. Crusher on a covert mission behind enemy lines, so to speak, to learn about the plans. It turns out it's all a ruse to catch Jean-Luc Picard 
as well as Worf and Crusher, but particularly Picard, and interrogate him about the Federation defenses on the Cardassian border so that they can, in fact, mount an aggression campaign down the road. Uh, so that's the A plot, is Picard in captivity, and it gets dark. The B plot is also dark, uh, where you have Captain Jellicoe take over the Enterprise and is a much more militaristic man than Jean-Luc Picard. Instead of saying, make it so, he says, get it done. And that's a, uh, it's easier to point out examples for how he's more militaristic. Captain on the Bridge has always said, the time has chimed out. Uh, Deanna Troy has to wear a regulation uniform, which Marina Sirtis kept after this episode throughout the duration she of the series. She wore it so well. <laughs> indeed. Yeah. Uh, indeed. Uh, but... He is clearly, he's not a bad man, but he's clearly a very different man from Jean-Luc Picard. And that's, so all the people who are still on the Enterprise are dealing with Jellico in the new regime, not the new boss, same as the old boss, totally different. Uh, Riker doesn't take it well, for one. And But then the A-plot with Picard is what everyone remembers this episode for. Patrick Stewart is a major supporter of Amnesty International. And for this episode, he actually reached out to them and got them to advise him on what it's like to be a prisoner of war and what it's like to be interrogated. He insisted that his character be stripped nude as part of the interrogation process because it's used to dehumanize uh, people in that situation. And a lot of the... Torture techniques come directly from what other governments in our world actually use. Um, and the, the four lights are actually a reference to the torture scene in the climax of 1984. And in 1984, Winston Smith actually does say, he, he succumbs and says that there are a number of lights that he's being told exist when there are really more. Jean-Luc Picard never succumbed. He, he, he does not. Uh, he almost he came, does. He came close. He came yeah. close. Oh yeah. And isn't the last episode, the last scene of this? He's talking to Deanna, and he says, "I don't know what I would have said if they asked again." Well, he oh, says, yeah. "I actually he saw five lights." Oh yeah, that's yeah, right. He, he, he saw. He five believed lights. he saw five lights. Yeah. Yeah. It, it. This episode might be the toughest TNG episode to watch of the whole run, especially part two. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I did it's not certainly Patrick it for a Stewart's best work. Yeah, he should have won an Emmy for this for this episode. I know they never give acting Emmys to, to uh, science fiction. Maybe these days they might have because they've given some to Game of Thrones, justifiably. But this episode deserves an Emmy nod for Patrick Stewart. Uh, Rick, when you watched Chain of Command original run, what were your reactions to it? It was uh, very hard to watch. Um, not And not like from an Encounter of Farpoint sort of way, but from yeah. a, uh it's just everything is so um, harsh. You know, you, you get Jellico on, on the Enterprise and played by Ronnie Cox, who is such, you know, he is so accomplished at playing douchebags. <laughs> um, and, and he, he, you know, you don't think that Jean-Luc Picard is easygoing until you meet Captain Jellico, who is so by the book and so by the numbers that, uh, you know, you don't, there's just nothing to like about the guy. No. There's nothing, you know, it's not like he's evil. He's not a Captain Queeg or he's not, no. you know, uh, you know, anything bad, but he's just, everything is going to be absolutely by the book. This is the flagship of the Federation. Y'all have been just kind of, kind of, you know, playing poker all over the place. We are going to straighten this up. You know, everybody resents him for it and rightfully so. 
But then you've got the whole Picard torture scene and the fact that they cast David Warner as uh, as his torturer. I forget the, the the character's name. You know, Warner is amazing. You know, Warner can play both bad guys and good guys with equal facility. We've seen him do both. Uh, you know, he played Gorkun in in Star Trek Six. He was Jack the Ripper in Time After Time. He can do both equally. As the Cardassian interrogator, he is not twisting the mustache evil bad guy. No. But he has a job to do, and he makes you believe that he regrets what he's doing. But he's also going to do it, and he's not going to flinch. And he really sets up what the Cardassians become in Deep Space Nine. If nothing else, when he's talking about his daughter, amidst torturing a man, he's talking about how much he loves his daughter. And we get that again with Dukat. Yeah. The Cardassians are so layered. Not to quote Shrek, they're not like onions, but they are a layered, (laughs) layered villain. And I think that... You know, to go with the parallel, there there clearly is a parallel to Germany under the Third Reich when they wrote the Cardassians with the Bajorans. There's actually a historical book, Ordinary Men, which is about ordinary Germans who fought in the Eastern Front, and they taught, you know they write letters to their daughters and to their sons, to their wives and their mothers, and they're having fun and playing you know soccer on you know when they're off or playing cards or watching movies. But they're still committing these atrocities because they think it's the right thing to do. And I see the same sort of strange yet realistic combination in the way that TNG and DS9 portray the Cardassians, particularly. One of the things that Star Trek does best is it shows, uh, you know, going back to TOS with the Horda, they don't just make things black and white unless it's let that be your last battlefield. Um, Star Trek has always shown that even the most evil character, there's something about them. Nobody, nobody considers themselves evil. You know, everybody is the good guy in their own narrative. And Star Trek really takes that idea and runs with it. Their villains have almost always been nuanced in, and you see this so much in this character uh, and in the Cardassians. I kind of disagree with calling them villains. They're antagonists, you know, similar to the Romulans and the Klingons in that they don't share the the Federation's ideals of freedom and, and, and stuff like that and justice. But I wouldn't call them villains. I would call them a race or a species that are so different that their ideals clash with the Federation. But, like, what happens to Picard in this episode is really no different than what our own government was doing in Iraq. Yes. He's being tortured, and I'm not in any way saying that it's mitigated, but it's not like the Inquisition. They're not tearing his kneecaps off, and they're not, you know breaking his bones or stuff it's it's all psychological torture and it's all you know what are the words we're hearing these days you know stress positions and Mm -hmm. sleep deprivation and all of these quote-unquote enhanced interrogation techniques dehumanization exactly and it's stuff that our own government and believe me i am not endorsing this at all i think it's appalling but you know we're looking at what 1992 three something like that yeah where this statement was being made Ten years, 15 years before we realized our government is still doing this crap. And this episode, while I'm a, I'm a little disappointed because, you know, we were talking about how, how Star Trek and, and TNG especially is, is really good at repercussions. There aren't a whole lot from this episode, and there should have been. 
but grant but they also didn't have a whole lot of time left either they they made a big deal out of picard's borg repercussions in the movies but they only had one more season to deal with this and they kind of didn't i mean jean-luc picard has had so much crap happen to him in seven years the dude should be in an insane asylum by the time he steps off the enterprise for the last time josh what was your reaction on watching chain of command that was a really hard one to follow I was glad I watched it alone and not and not with my wife. I I, I can't say anything that hasn't been said already, man. It, it's a great episode, but it's tough, uh, especially compared to the fun of Time Zero. And, and the part where he admitted that he believed there were five lights gave me chills, and the fact that that's how it ended was brilliant. There's no note of hope. I mean, that's it. Done. The only disappointment was that you, you're kind of expecting Captain Picard to never quite be the same but then he just fully recovers from it, and, and like Rick said, no repercussions. No follow-up. We'll move on to an episode that is a follow-up in a way to earlier episodes, and Josh will have the floor first for Birthright. Uh, the, the second part two of season six, Birthright is the tale of what happens when Worf finds out his father might be alive and goes to a Romulan camp where Romulans and Klingons are living side-by-side side in peace? Question mark. Meanwhile, in part one... Data dreams with the help of Dr. Bashir and becomes a bird like Nelly Furtado, but we, we never hear about it again. Oh, oh, why? That could be your hashtag for the episode, fly like a data. Do, what do you think about Birthright? I, I like Worf. Again, he's a, a big part of why I appreciate what Star Trek The Next Generation has done with Klingons to present them as a much more complicated people than they were portrayed as back in the original series. Uh, but honestly, everything that I love about Birthright happened in part one of this because I'm a huge fan of Data. Yeah. And Data's journey of self-discovery in Birthright part one was one of the most beautiful things that I think I ever witnessed in Star Trek The Next Generation. Learning that androids do not, in fact, dream of electric sheep, but they dream of their master <laughs> for some weird reason. But yes, also, it was pretty neat getting to see Brent Spiner without the data makeup on. Or the old makeup. It's the first yeah. time we've seen him as him, which was nice. Yeah, overall, this two-parter is is great. I, I, I do really appreciate the story, the greater story of, of Worf teaching these young Klingons what it's like to be Klingon again, while... In my opinion, making every attempt possible not to destroy the beautiful thing they have on on, on that one remote planet. Yeah, I, I have to say, um, everything that I love just kind of takes away from the main story because of what happened yeah. to Data. Can I say, part one I think is good. Mm-hmm. Part two, while I know what they're going for, and I hate to use this word with Trek, but part two is boring in my opinion. It's just kind of a snooze fest. I find it that way. I don't know if you agree, Rick. What do you, what do you say? I kind of went back and forth on this today because I was actually kind of intending at the beginning, because there was so much to cover, of suggesting that we disqualify this one as a two-parter because it isn't. It's two episodes kind of squished together that are vaguely related, and they had the war story overlap a little bit into part one, but there's nothing of the data story in part two. I do completely uh, agree with that. Uh, so I, I don't know why they decided to make this a two-parter, because it really isn't. It's two episodes that are on a similar theme that could have easily been just two episodes. There was no need for the – especially because it, was, it wasn't even a season cliffhanger. There's no need for it to be a two-parter. They could have had the data storyline 
in one episode with Bashir, and then yeah. the next episode could have been Worf going to the prison camp. You know, unless it turned out that when they finished writing the data storyline, they were ten minutes short or five minutes short or whatever. Uh, so they decided to kind of add a little bit of the Worf story in there, which that was that was kind of padded out. And I agree, the Worf story is utterly uninteresting, with the possible exception of the something nobody seems to <laughs> talk about that Worf was all set to uh, to bang a seventeen year old until he realized she had pointed ears. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Law and Order, Star Trek Victims Unit. <laughs> Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's it's not a bad episode. It's just kind of, you know, war first blood, and it just goes nowhere. One of the writers of the show admitted that Worf was racist in this episode. Oh, do yeah. You, oh, do yeah. you really want your protagonist, essentially the only protagonist in part two, because almost every scene takes place in that camp, do you really want him to be racist? No, this is this is well after the one where, where Worf had to let, was going to let a Romulan die without giving him blood. Correct. That was, I think, in season four. Okay, so this is an established character trait, so I didn't have a problem with that. Because of what happened at Kinnamer, right? Because they killed his father. As you've said, mediocre Trek is better than no Trek, and there were certainly things about this episode that were worthwhile. It just, the, the resolution was too pat, although I did like the exchange with Picard and Worf at the end, where Worf says, you know, uh, there, there was no camp. These children were, were found, you know, survivors of a crash, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and, and Picard went, all right, I get it. And, you know, that was that was kind of a nice little scene. But just overall, the, the Data storyline was fun, was interesting. I like I like it when they flesh Data out some more. You know, the dreaming thing was interesting. The, the Wharf storyline was completely meh. And one little factoid, I looked at Memory Alpha for production notes on this show. Data's dreaming was originally, A, it was supposed to be um, Terry Farrell as Dax originally. Was supposed to be the guest star, but then they changed it to the last minute to Bashir. And originally, it was supposed to be Data having the equivalent of demonic possession, of some sort of weird vision. But then they changed it to a dream because they felt they had done something too close to possession with power play. Yeah, yeah, and then then we'll do it again next week <laughs> with, with masks, I think. Right. So so that's why they changed it to a dream and probably better off for it because it does create that beautiful moment where he meets Soong in, in, in the dream and says that if you've reached, if you found me, you've reached beyond where I ever thought you'd get. I, I love Data finding Soong. This is something I've never admitted before uh, on a podcast. I don't think Brent Spiner is all that good of an actor. And I know that that, that would be a vi- I think he's great as Data. I've n- never seen a performance he's given as anyone else that I bought except for this one. As the young Soong, without all the makeup and without... All the affectations, I, I liked that, and it was nice. I, I lost my father when I was fourteen, so so finding your father's stories kind of hit me hard, and I really liked this one. Uh, I just wish it didn't contaminated by the, the the wharf story. Well, speaking of things that may have been contaminated by too many plots, we have three more to go, and the next one we're going to be falling down quite a bit in quality as we fall to descent. <laughs> this one stands out in the lore of the show. ironically this is Jordy's. this is the two-parter where Jordy has the the, maybe the biggest role (laughs) even though it's not all that much (laughs) so descent at the end of season six beginning of season seven and basically what what happens when the borg and lore show up at the same time 
hijinks ensue. Da, 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 da. You've got Hugh from iBorg. You've got Lore. You've got the Borg. You've got the Emotion Ship making its first appearance. You put all that together for a ratatouille of uh, quality, but unfortunately <laughs> you get more of a rat of an episode. Put all that together and you get one steaming pile of Star Trek. Rick, what's your? you started shuddering like Sideshow Bob when I mentioned the title. I, I had to rewatch this one because I, I didn't really remember what all happened in it. and I'm so sorry, sir. I am too. There's nothing redeemable about this episode. I don't like lore stories anyway, and this was just... This was the worst lore story of the bunch. Yeah, you know, yet again, data is is con, you know remote controlled from outside, and and you know the 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 lore lifting up his fingernail, and no, data needs better password protection. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if we weren't already like two hours into the almost two hours into the show, I I'd, I'd probably rail on a little more about this, but I I don't think we really need to waste any time talking about how bad this episode is. Is it safe to say that Descent will not be our pick for the best? I'd agree with that, yeah. <laughs> Josh, are you are you fine with saying that? You know, Gambit was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to Gambit, the two-parter in Season 7, where Picard goes on his Indiana Jones adventure. What are, your, what are your thoughts on Gambit? And yes, I know he's your favorite X-Men, but what's your thought about the episode? <laughs> <laughs> My uh, wife would is... agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> this one... <laughs> It's a good thing that Star Trek has been largely a monster of the week format show, because if this happened with any type of continuity with the show, it would it would completely ruin it. But this this is a, a fantastic two-parter. If if you want to qualify it by calling it, but uh, by, by saying is it good as a two-parter? Yeah, I, I agree. It completely is. It has an excellent, even though it wasn't a season cliffhanger moment, it did have a pretty excellent to be continued moment. Where the moment that the engine gets hit, that's when they freeze it and say to be continued. I, I thought that was that was really good. And who'd have thought that Captain Picard would make an excellent undercover guy? The funny thing with Gambit, whenever I watch it, I, I think it's a good episode, but then I always forget about it for some reason. It just never stands out. Maybe because it's a season seven episode. Maybe because you're right. It should have huge consequences, but it doesn't. Just like yeah. another episode that should have had consequences but didn't was The Chase, with the, mm-hmm. the DNA shared by all the Alpha Quadrant species. Right. That should have been a total deal, a total game changer for everything in the Trek universe, and it's not. Well, it was kind of a throwback to a TOS episode, so it, it sort of was like already just confirming what had already been said. And, and also, the other races involved were it, it it was very plausible that they would just go well we don't believe that rick what are your thoughts on gambit you know it's interesting that josh just said that he, he he can't remember it because i started to watch it yesterday and i got about five minutes into the episode and i was like oh it's this one i don't really need to watch it <laughs> yeah i can't remember a damn thing about it. <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> uh i thought it was the one where ro uh ro Laren betrayed picard but it wasn't that one that's later on that's a one that's a single episode down the line I think that one's actually called the Maquis, if I'm not mistaken. I think you're right, yeah. I apologize. Gambit left absolutely no impression on me other than, oh, yeah, I know that one, and then I don't. <laughs> I kind of put it in the same category as Time Zero. It's not bad, but it's not the most memorable either. Yeah. I think I'm just being too nice is what I'm, I'm feeling well, here. <laughs> I think Patrick Stewart had a lot of fun with that role. Oh, I'm sure he did. And honestly, at the chain of command, he deserved to have some fun. 
So yeah, true, true. We'll let that one be his own favorite, and we'll get to the last one. I know we're before we move on from that. That episode was, in my opinion, some of Jonathan Frakes' best work as Riker. Yes, uh, I would say that you're right on that point. Especially when he he just punches Picard in the face. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Frakes seems to have the kind of sense of humor where he probably took great pleasure in that scene. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> That's what made him want to direct him in all the movies. So moving on to the last two-parter, which was wrapping up back to the beginning, All Good Things. I watched a lot of episodes in their first run later on in the series, but this is the one that stays with me. I remember where I was when I saw All Good Things. I remember... This is the finale, by the way, if you don't know it by the title. I remember where I was. I remember being... So happy that it was a Q story, that it was a time travel story, that Jordy and Data had important roles in it because they were my two favorite characters growing up and probably still are. All Good Things was all good things. And to use the phrase from the, the story, yes, it's convoluted. Yes, it's complicated. But I think it is the ideal wrap for the show. Uh, I love the closing moment when Picard goes to play poker. I love the moment where Q says the trial never ended. I love the fact they brought in O'Brien and Tasha in the flashback scenes back to season one with the last time that we saw the season one style uniform and the miniskirt variant of it on the screen. And I love the fact that above all else, it is a scientific problem that they have to solve which is quintessential next-gen. And I still, and after all the other finales, like um, What You Leave Behind in DS9, Endgame and Voyager, it's certainly better than the finale of Enterprise that was basically a TNG episode with, you know, Archer's commentary. This episode, to me, is what TNG is all about. But there are certainly flaws in it. I will make this claim, it's a hell of a lot better than Generation, in my opinion. The video of my last colonoscopy was better than Generations, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's just ironic that they put so much work into Generation script, and they kind of put this one together so quickly, and it ended up being so much better. Josh, did you see All Good Things when it was on, or have you just you more watched it more recently? I watched it more recently for the first time. So maybe your opinion is going to be different. I probably have nostalgia glasses for this episode. It's a great episode. It doesn't feel right. I, I, I never saw it as a two-parter and, you know, rebroadcasting or anything. So it doesn't feel right for me to discuss it as a two-parter because um, I have no idea at which point they actually retroactively inserted the, the to-be-continued moment. But I, I think it's a great episode. You, you say that it has its flaws, that it's complicated, that it's convoluted. That's the point of the episode. It's intentionally complicated and convoluted. The fact that Patrick Stewart's mind slash spirit, whatever you want to call that that intangible essence of him is moving through time in the same body with no control over it. That is uh, the, the point. You, you, wouldn't you be confused if that kept happening to you? The to-be-continued moment is when Picard goes into the bridge of Crusher's future ship and he walks into the trial with Q. Oh, Oh, that would be a pretty good to be continued moment. And that's a, I mean, it's not a giant cliffhanger, but you realize no. that Q's been behind the whole thing. I think he also figured out that Q had something to do with it before then and demanded him to show himself before actually ending up in the trial room again, if I'm not mistaken. He did. Well, he started seeing the rabble in the crowd from the trial from Encounter at Farpoint. I think he saw them in the vineyard, and I think he saw them in the shuttle bay, so he knew that there was something going on but because of his mental state, he couldn't put it together quite yet until he was able to get back to the present. Yes, but if I'm not mistaken, he it, when he was in the 
we'll just we'll call it the seven years ago Enterprise. Didn't he show up at the anomaly and demand for Q to show himself before ultimately finding himself in the trial? Again? Yes, I believe you're correct. Okay, Rick, did you see All Good Things when it aired for the first? Oh, time? absolutely, uh, absolutely. And th- this is what, what I'm about to say may not be appreciated by a lot of people who who are not as old as I am. <laughs> but I rank this right up there with the finale of MASH as one of the greatest series finales of all television history. Yes. When this aired, you know, like I said, this this was long before the internet, long before DVDs. Not everybody could afford a VCR yet at this point. My girlfriend had a VCR, and I recorded this episode. This was the one Star Trek Next Generation episode I had taped. I taped <laughs> it, too. I must have watched it, you know, a, a hundred times before that tape finally wore out. I don't have a bad word to say about this episode. I'm sure there are flaws in it. I can't think of one offhand. Nothing about it stands out to me as as being an, uh, all right, come on. The, the, the whole mystery of the episode is so beautifully played out. Patrick Stewart, you know, it, it may be redundant to keep commenting on Patrick Stewart's acting abilities. I don't think so. He is so amazing. And Star Trek has been, was so lucky that he was both available and took the gig because, you know, for the entire first season of TNG, he didn't unpack because he and his agent were both convinced this was going to last maybe one season and then they'd be looking for work again. You know, he's he's a classically trained Shakespearean actor who he got a lot of guff from the Royal Shakespeare Company for doing this this silly science fiction show. You know, Patrick Stewart is amazing and he has never shown better than he did in in all good things john delancey we've loved him since the very since encounter at farpoint he you know he nailed q from the get-go but this was q's apex of his performance as q yes and and this is q's redemption yes exactly and everybody else did a great job too getting denise crosby back to act like she did seven years prior which for an actor that is not easy i love the crazed Riker from the universe where the Borg are everywhere uh, on the on the view screen. Or am I thinking of the wrong episode? That's in parallels. That's in parallels. Damn it. Sorry. But Riker, <laughs> but the Riker in this episode is really angry and bitter because of Deanna's death in the future story. Oh, that's that's right. And that's he right. plays yes. bitter so well in this episode. You feel it, and you it shows you how much he loves Troy, which sets up the, the romance in the movies. Yes, yes. Uh, I love how Beverly was was in command of what was essentially. A, a an extrapolation of the Daedalus class ship. Yes. Uh, in case y'all haven't caught on to this, I'm something of a wonk for starships. <laughs> so I don't yeah. know cars, but I know my starship classes. Well, we had an episode a few weeks ago on the best ship in Star Wars. When we have the best ship in Trek, we'll have you back on for that one. Okay, I'll, I'll be right there. You know, when when the, the, the future Enterprise with the third warp nacelle comes up and blows the hell out of the Klingon battlecruiser. It's just, I don't think there's a bad moment in this show. And you're right, that last moment where Picard is dealing the cards and he says, you know, uh, you know, whatever, and the sky's the limit. And and then we just get sort of that that pull up through the through the top of the Enterprise, and it's just it's a beautiful, beautiful send off to the series that doesn't shut anything down because they knew they were going into movies. So it's not mm-hmm. like the end of DS9 where they just they just. I look at this and I think. What a shame that the movies never lived up to the promise that All Good Things left us with. I, I love All Good Things as a finale. I wonder what could have been if it was one of the movies. 
I don't, I don't, I don't know if it would have worked, but I, I still, I find it one of the great regrets of the next gen movies that we never had a Q appearance on the big screen. This is the storyline that would have warranted it. Yeah, yeah. But we got an amazing finale out of it, so yeah. we'll take that. Yeah. Honestly, my favorite part about when when Picard came in to play poker with them was when he said he should have done this years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Jellico wouldn't have done that. No. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> But yes, you um, said security to break up the game. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so it is now time to pick the best. We've gone through them all. And in a shocker, I'm going to pick Gambit. No, I'm kidding. Uh, no. Uh, Descent. Which, no. which one? <laughs> pick the one that you think is the best. If you want to pick a worst, you can. But we're concerned with good things here. Uh, so, Josh, first, what is your choice for the best two-part episode of The Next Generation? For me, 110% Chain of Command. It is the only episode of Star Trek The Next Generation that made me feel as strong as it did. That actually made me feel like I was right there in the same room watching Picard get interrogated like that. It, It was just one of the most emotional moments of the entire series and beautiful. I loved it. A valid choice, sir. And it shows in the Cardassian love coming through again. So turn on one light for Chain of Command. <laughs> uh, Rick, I have a guess based on your earlier commentary, but what's your pick for the best two-parter? I wasn't sure coming into this episode. I know I kind of hinted earlier, but I honestly wasn't sure. But I think I, I am going to go with my, my initial feeling, and it's going to be redemption. Certainly, All Good Things and Chain of Command are amazing episodes, but... I don't think they have the rewatchability that Redemption does. I, I'm not big on rewatching episodes uh, as I get older because I just I don't have much time. I have a five year old kid, so I I only get a couple hours a day to watch grown up stuff, <laughs> and so I don't have a whole lot of time to go back and rewatch stuff anymore. But on the rare occasion that I do, I find myself rewatching Redemption more than anything else. It so encapsulates everything Star Trek. We're looking at the minutia of an en- of a supposed enemy, and we're seeing them as human beings. I, I know that's kind of a contradiction because we're seeing them as Klingons, but we're humanizing them. We're making them real people. We're fleshing them out. We're seeing something that Star Trek has been criticized for not doing, which is creating an entire race as opposed to just sort of this two-dimensional caricature of a of a a planet that needs to represent some metaphorical thing the the repercussions from from redemption echo throughout the rest of all of the series the performances are just incredible the 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 whole immersion in this other world is uncompromising and i just i love every minute of redemption and i've, I've got to give it the top place another valid choice sir for for my pick if we were just picking on single parts of a two-parter, I would choose Best of Both Worlds Part 1, hands down, because that episode is a masterclass. And it may very well be the best single episode of one of the best of the whole series. Part 2 doesn't live up to Part 1, so I can't in good conscience pick it as the best two-parter. My pick for the best two-parter is All Good Things. And the reason is, I agree with Redemption and with Chain of Command. And those are actually my runners-up. And I also have a soft spot for Time Zero, but that's just because I'm a history nerd. Uh, but it's not my pick. All Good Things, 
appeals to me personally because my favorite kinds of episodes are the puzzle boxes. The episodes that slowly unravel, you get revelation after revelation. It's like when you're playing Metroid and you start getting more powers and you start getting into more areas and you slowly reveal yourself and you're on a journey where you start seeing the big picture and then when it all comes together, there's that moment of, wow, all good things made me wow. It made me... You know, just exclaim with joy, I love the episode, and on top of the scientific puzzle that was created with Q, you also have one of the best finales in television history full of character moments. And for the ideal combination of character moments and the most beautifully written puzzle box of the entire series, I have to give it to All Good Things. If you're pressing me and have to pick a two-parter that was originally run as a two-parter, then I probably side a little bit with Chain of Command just for Patrick Stewart's performance alone. Uh, but Redemption is also high up there. But All Good Things is my pick, and I'll stick by that one. You know, I don't disagree with either of you. And that's the wonderful thing about Star Trek is that there is something for everybody in the show at some point. I mean, you know, it, it's easy to kind of say, all right, there are five series, uh, 700-something episodes of of. You know, so you're bound to find something that you like. But I think the reason Star Trek has endured for 50 years is that it doesn't just, you know, like the, the you know, a broken clock is right twice a day. It's not just a matter of there's so much of it that you're going to you have to find something you like. I think it is consistently uh, it consistently resonates with people. Mm-hmm. And so even if all three of us picked a different episode, I don't think any of us disagree with the other's choice. Not no. at all. I, I mean, I would have been okay if somebody did pick Gambit. I mean, there's there's something to be found in any of these episodes, maybe except Descent. <laughs> and even Descent even had some, you know, it had some nice data moments. You can and, make a case uh, for Encounter at Farpoint as laying the groundwork. There's something to be said about all these episodes, which is, the, like you said, the beauty of, of Next Gen and Star Trek in general. Oh, yeah. And, and let's go back to Descent, data fan. First off, if you say a dissension favorite two-parter, you will answer to me. But oh my god, one of my favorite data moments is when he admitted that when he when he killed the Borg, he felt pleasure. Yeah, that's that, that's possibly one of my favorite data moments of all time. There's always a moment that makes every episode good. Now I I love how the the emotion chip went from a little teeny tiny sliver of copper to that giant Hershey bar thing that they made it in the movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You can't see that prop on screen. Hmm. <laughs> well, uh, I want to thank you both for being on the show. This has been the longest discussion in B&Q history so far, but well worth it. We certainly will revisit Trek later. And Rick, I hope that you'll be inclined to join us again sometime soon because it's been a pleasure having you on, on I almost said on the Starbase, but in Big Nerdy Headquarters. <laughs> uh, well, we, we truly appreciate it. Well, thank you. I have had such a great time. You know, I have been a, a science fiction podcaster for almost a decade now. Jesus Christ. (laughs) I rarely get to just totally, purely geek out on Trek, and I have had such a great time tonight. Thank you so much for having me on. As our special guest, and since Matt's not here, Rick, will you do us the honor and the privilege, sir, of killing Jar Jar Binks? We are the Borg. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Wait a minute. You don't have any. Seven of nine. Open the airlock. (laughs) (laughs) I'm now picturing an assimilated Jar Jar, and it's probably going to be a villain of a fan fiction now. Great job, Rick.
Musa assimilate you. Musa add biological oh. distinctiveness to Misa mine. Misa the board. <laughs> we, we saw the board. <laughs> you saw lower your shields and surrender. The the, oh, the best unofficial moment of every B and Q is that last big laugh. Well done, Rick. Uh, so for Rick Frannel Marius from the Star Basin from the Seventh Chevron, and for Josh P, this is Josh H saying, until next time, live long and prosper. Thank you.